There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, it prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. For the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Last week we started our new series, Cultivating the Christian Life, and we learned that God's ultimate object lesson for us, his people, is to be like a tree. And so this is the imagery that we are going through in our spiritual formation series. Today we begin phase one, the planted phase, and we will begin by talking about the importance of the scriptures in our spiritual formation, because one of the most common metaphors used for the Bible in the Bible is that of a seed, that God wants this seed to be planted on the inside of our hearts. And so I want to begin on a more personal note today. I want to just explain how very important just this one tool has been for me in my own spiritual formation. And we'll begin a little differently today as I just want to give you a little window into my devotional time with the Lord and share some of the more important scriptures that God has allowed me uh, to sow inside of my own heart in my journey with Him. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all of the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. He will not always accuse us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or harbor his anger forever. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, on those who keep his covenant, and those who remember to obey his precepts. As for man, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are grass. The wind blows over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting is the Lord's love with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Oh, praise the Lord, you his angels, you, you mighty ones who do his will, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, you heavenly hosts who obey every word God commands. Praise the Lord, all things in all of his dominion everywhere. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And that hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love for us in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anybody die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Matthew 6, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or the body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? And who among you, by worrying, could add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? All the pagans worry about these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 1 Corinthians 13. And if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my very body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Love always trusts always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will cease. And if there are tongues, they will be stilled. And if there is knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, that which is imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see like in a glass dimly. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, 
faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. The reason I start this message today just by reciting Psalm 1, Psalm 103, Isaiah 53, Romans 5, Matthew 6, 1 Corinthians 13, is out of, a, out of a desperate desire I have in my heart. And the desire is that you might see the incredible value of knowing and memorizing the Word of God for your own spiritual formation. My prayer is that God would do for you this morning what he did for me 20 years ago. And I was in a classroom, and I, I was listening to Dr. Mark Bailey teach, and all of a sudden, he started just saying Isaiah 53. And I don't even know if the other classmates realized this, but I realized it. He wasn't looking at his notes. He just knew it. And my jaw was wide open. I never have heard something so beautiful in my entire life. I was stunned by the beauty of just the word of God. It was like me, God's sheep, hearing his voice. And for a second, I like tuned into the right station and I heard God talking. And that set me on a trajectory in my spiritual life to begin hiding God's word inside of my own heart so that when I'm on a walk or when I'm on a drive or when I'm doing this or that and I have a few moments, I could talk to myself by using the very word of God and encourage myself. And I hope and pray that you will consider the value of doing the same because you know what? The psalmist says we should taste and see that God's word is more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, even drippings from the honeycomb. Today we handed out hearts on your way in. Go ahead and take that out. In, inside the heart, you'll notice there's wildflower seeds that are embedded inside of your heart. They're a picture for you just to remember that God wants you to plant his seed inside of your heart. And we've divided up this series into these categories, subcategories. We're calling them rules. I don't mean rule like checking a box or a checklist or some sort of you know, legalistic way of living like the Pharisees. I, a rule in spiritual formation terms is a commitment to a way of living. I live by this rule, like the rule of St. Benedict. The first rule that we're going to cover in this series is, is here. Rule number one, plant your feet on solid ground or you'll be tossed around your whole life. And this is the first rule on purpose because it, it, it instructs us to have a posture of submission when it comes to God's word. And we begin with this rule strategically because this is the bedrock upon which we can build the rest of the series, and it's also the bedrock upon which you can build your own spiritual life. Everybody has an authority. If you don't have God's word as the authority in your life, you're going to listen to all kinds of different, sometimes conflicting opinions. One day you'll decide this, another day you'll decide that, then one day you won't be able to decide at all. Now, I know authority can be abused, and some of you have legitimate issues with that, and I get that. What we're talking about here is the most loving authority you could ever imagine. God loves you and wants to bless you with his word. So this is the key difference between followers of God and unbelievers. It's a fundamental divide. On the one hand, you have the belief uh, that the authority of human wisdom is the direction that I want to submit to. And on the other hand, you have the authority of divine revelation. And there's a clear dividing line. There's only those two choices. 
our authority here at NBC is that we believe God has spoken in his word, in the Bible. That's what we affirm. The Bible is not man-made, it's, it's God-breathed. These are not the words of any person or a king or a human government. These are the, word, the very words of God himself. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed, theopneustos, inspired, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's us, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is an absolutely amazing verse. This is a stunning claim on the screen right there, isn't it? The claim is that God, the God, wants to communicate with you. The the God of the universe wants to communicate with you, and he wrote down his message in a book called the Bible. I've never gotten over this. This is stunning. And so here at MBC, we believe that this is our authority, and this influences every decision we make. This influences how we might serve in every area. It influences how we do kids' ministry. It influences how we do youth ministry. It influences how we do small groups. It influences how we do hospitality, how we engage our mission, how we lead in worship, and how we preach from this pulpit right here. Everything we do here is in subject to, is subjected to, in submission to, and grounded in biblical authority. And so the question today is, is your life submitted to biblical authority? In a more personal way, are you living a life that has a posture of submission to the authority of God in your life? And so this is rule number one. And the reason why this is rule number one is because the mark of a God-changed heart, the mark of a God-changed heart, is you love to have God tell you what to do. And so today, uh, if you have your workbook, open it up to page 24 where you can take notes. We want to look at a rather famous passage, a parable from Mark chapter 4. It's called the parable of the soils. And the point of this parable is just to challenge us at any age and stage uh, to just have a check-in regarding our receptivity to the Word of God. And we'll discover in this passage four different types of hearers. Uh, We'll discover those who have a hard heart, those who have a shallow heart, those who have a divided heart, and then those who have a soft heart. And as we read, please do so with a view of thinking, what kind of heart do I have today? What kind of heart do I have? What kind of heart would God say that What kind of person am I? And so that's where we're headed today. Uh, Before we look at God's word, let's pray, and then we'll dig dig into it. Dear God, we just pause right now, bow our heads, close our eyes. Thank you for preserving your word. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would open up our ears and our eyes and most of all our hearts so that we might not only hear from you, take away any filter or block that would prevent us from listening to you, God, And then as we go from here, would you take away any stumbling block in my path, in our path, that would prevent us from obeying you? And so we ask that you'd bless our time in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Take a look at it with me. It says this, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by Parables. So today in our text, in the Gospel of Mark, you're going to be introduced to Jesus, the master storyteller. He was a great storyteller. He often used these things called parables. A parable is just a physical illustration that teaches a spiritually significant truth. And so parables are a great way to engage his audience. They give word pictures. They, they kind of spark our creativity. They, 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 they kind of like engage our imagination. They, they capture our heart. And so he would often use this techniques because all of us, we love a good story. And um, this is where he taught the, 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 the parable of, of the soils. In fact, scholars believe that they found the very place where he might have first given this discourse. They call it the Cove of the Parables there, right around the Sea of Galilee. So just imagine you're there. Just imagine that you're there in the first century, and there's this crowd gathered around this new teacher, and uh, he starts teaching some things. And you're there, and you get to listen. And here's what he says. Listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. 
so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It, it came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Notice verse 9 there. The main issue in this parable is going to have to do with hearing and listening and receptivity. Several times throughout Mark chapter 4, he'll use that same word for hear. In verse 12, they're hearing but not understanding. In verse 23, anyone who has an ear to hear, let them hear. In verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. The word of God comes through hearing, so he says, take heed how you hear. Now, you ever meet people that are just terrible listeners? Just terrible listeners? Like, are you even listening to anything I'm saying right now? Hello? Notoriously, sometimes we as husbands are not particularly great at this skill in life. Our wives are talking to us and, honey, are you even listening? And sometimes I can be this way. And sometimes I can also be this way with God's word. And God's like, Dave, are you even listening? Faith comes by hearing, so be careful how you hear, Dave. There are many things that we will listen to today. Uh, We will turn on the afternoon, Sunday news. We will listen to them Uh, Many of us will watch the Cowboys win later on. We'll listen to that game later on today. Let's go. We will listen to social media. We'll listen to all kinds of things today. Right here, this morning, we have an opportunity to listen to the words of Jesus Christ himself. I can't think of anything more important to tune our attention into right here. So be careful how you hear. And so sometimes God comes to me and says, are you really listening now, when my wife accuses me of that, not listening, I get defensive. I'm like, I'm t- I was listening. I was, I was listening. Here's what you said. But what if I dropped my defenses a little bit with God? What, what if we all dropped our defenses here with this passage today and we just allowed God to speak to us and say, Dave, there's that one area. You know what I'm talking about. I've been trying to talk to you about that area. You don't want to listen to me in that one area. Could I have your attention about that? I just want you to listen. What if we just listened? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Let's take heed how we hear. Now, this is one of the parables, one example, where Jesus actually gives us the interpretation of the parable. He doesn't always do that, but in this case, he gives us like a divine authoritative interpretation. So let's take a look at what the parable means. Drop down with me to verse 14. Jesus says, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word and accept it and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. It's amazing. So let's identify the different components to this parable just to make sure we understand what's going on here. First of all, The farmer is God. Jesus identifies that in Matthew chapter 13 really clearly. He says the sower is the son of man. This is God. This is Jesus who's teaching us about himself, about his word, and about his kingdom. And we notice right away that his kingdom is coming very differently from all the other kingdoms. In fact, I think it's very unique. Alexander the Great, when he brought his kingdom, it came through conquering. Right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all of these kingdoms came through military conquest. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not coming in like that. It's not, like, not going to be like with a sword. It's going to be more like with a seed. My kingdom is going to come quietly, not loudly. It's going to be more internal, not external. My kingdom is going to be more gradual, not so drastic. But eventually it will take over everything. Uh, Dr. Dan Doriani says it well. He says, regarding Jesus' kingdom, it comes with, as a whisper, not a shout. Jesus comes as a sower, not as an army commander. So this is the kind of kingdom that he came to bring. It comes through hearing and listening, not through coercion and force. And so the farmer is God. Number two, the seed is the word of God. 
The seed is the Word of God. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here and, and explain why we here at NBC believe that the Bible is authoritative. And there's several reasons. The first reason is this is what the Bible claims about itself. It's its own internal testimony. It claims to be accurate and true. Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, it claims to be speaking the very words of God. Like in the beginning of Isaiah, there's those wonderful words that say, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119, verse 160, your word is very pure. Your law is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances endure forever. Psalm 111, verse 7, all his precepts are sure. The Apostle Paul describes the scriptures in Romans chapter 7 as holy, righteous, and good. The scriptures claim to be true. They make this claim unambiguously. Isaiah 65, 16, God is the God of truth. Three times in the Bible, it actually tells us God cannot lie. Once in the book of Numbers, once in the book of Titus, once in the book of Hebrews. And then there are the classic passages on inspiration that talk about this. 2 Peter 1, 2 Timothy 3, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God has spoken in many ways. And then we see the New Testament come along, and the New Testament writers actually claim the same kind of authority for themselves. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, I didn't receive this gospel from a man. I received this as a divine revelation from God himself. Peter quotes Paul along with the rest of the scriptures. Jude quotes Peter as scripture. Paul quotes Luke as scripture. Luke quotes Matthew and Mark as scripture. John, writing Revelation, says in chapters 2 and 3, this is what the Spirit is saying to these churches. And so it's really clear that the New Testament writers knew that they were writing the very words of God. That's the internal evidence. There's also a lot of external evidence for the trustworthiness of this book. Get outside of the Bible, and you can also validate what's on the inside of the Bible. If we had time, I would show you strong archaeological evidence for the historicity of the Scriptures. We would talk about the, the, the transmission of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We would talk about the, the James Ossuary box, where they found the brother of our Lord Jesus' bones. We would talk about the, the Pilate Stone. We would talk about how they found King David's palace. We would talk about so many different places and people and events that they have discovered through archaeology uh, just digging in the ground. And the reason is because the Bible is rooted in real history. Or we could talk about fulfilled prophecy, how the Bible actually predicts things and then it comes to pass. Only God can do this. Only God can write history in advance. The Bible's basically two volumes, volume one, volume two. Volume one says a bunch of stuff's going to happen, and volume two is the record of it actually happening, basically. One example is Isaiah 53, which we saw earlier. 700 years before it happened, it predicts the vicarious substitutionary atonement of the Messiah who would die and rise for the sins of his people. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies like that in the Bible. There is something supernatural about this book. We could do an entire series just on the authority of the Bible, just scratching the surface here. But I do want to point out one particular individual who affirmed the trustworthiness of this book clearer than anybody else, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. I emphasize that because sometimes you hear people say, I'm not really too sure about the Bible, but I kind of like Jesus. Well, do you understand Jesus' view of the Scriptures were very high? I mean, he said things like the Scriptures cannot be broken. He said in John 17, your word is truth. He said not one jot and tittle would pass away. In Matthew chapter 22, there's this group of Sadducees that are trying to trap him, and they ask him a question because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they try to trick him with this question about this woman who'd been married a few times. And they say, okay, she's been married seven times. If there's really a resurrection, then when all that happens, who's she going to be married to? And he corrects them by quoting the Bible. And look, look at the way that he actually corrects them in, in Matthew 22, verse 29. It says, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes on to say this, have you not read what God said to you? Now think about those words for a second, those exact words. Have you not read, not what God wrote. He says, have you not read 
what God said to you. Incredible. Do you see what he's doing here? He's holding them accountable for having heard the word of God spoken 1,400 years earlier, and he's holding them accountable as if God had said it to them directly. You can't say that Jesus didn't believe in the inspiration of scriptures. There's not one scintilla of evidence to back up that claim. He never questioned one word. You know why? It's because of who we believe Jesus to be. He's the second person of the Trinity. He wrote it. And this is why he says in Matthew chapter 24, which we sang about earlier, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And so if you love Jesus, I ask, do you really hold Jesus' view of the scriptures? Jesus' view of the scriptures was it was the very words of God. So we see the internal claim of the scriptures themselves. We see the New Testament writers also claim this. We see the external evidence points us in this direction. And then we see the testimony of Jesus. All of these things coming together just to affirm there's power in this seed. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. So that's the seed. And if this is true, then we need to respond accordingly. And that gets us to the soil. The soil is us. The soil is the human heart. And here he says when it comes to the human heart, there's four different kinds of responses. There's the path, there's the stony ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil. Remember that heart we gave you on your way in today. Think about that as we go through these four and just ask yourself, which one represents my heart? What kind of heart do I have? Response number one, first the path, the hard soil. This represents the hard heart. These are the people who hear the message of the kingdom of Jesus, but it never penetrates. It's like water on a duck's back. It it never gets through. This is the person when you share, they're not interested, and it's not because they don't understand you, and it's not because you weren't persuasive enough, and it's not because this message isn't powerful. It's because they don't want to hear what you have to say, and this is the hard heart. Ultimately, the reason is because this, this book has a call on our lives, and some people don't want to submit to another authority. And so like Frank Sinatra, they say, I, I did it my way. They don't want to submit to an authority after, outside of, of themselves. So their heart is hard. Uh, New Testament scholar Grant Osborne says it this way, this is not inadvertent ignorance, speaking of the hard soil, this is not inadvertent ignorance, but studied rejection, a sin with a high hand. They hear because they, they don't hear because they don't want to hear. They don't See, because they don't want to see. And then he says, Satan comes and steals the word away, which is a serious warning here. You'll recall it was Satan in the Garden of Eden who who first questioned the trustworthiness of the word of God, right? Didn't he say, did God really say? Any resemblance there is coincidental. Okay, so anyway, so hard soil, we have to watch this. The birds come. This is a serious warning. And I think as a Jesus follower uh, who's committed to spiritual formation, uh, the lesson here is that I need to be receptive. I need to learn to be receptive. The Word of God brings with it an inevitable crisis in my life because I have a sin nature. And as a result, some of the things in the Bible that I hear, I don't want to hear. And when I hear them, my defenses go up. And my emotions well up. It's an open confrontation with my conscience. And so the temptation is for me to get upset about that or make excuses. But at times, I'm going to find this personal confrontation to be very painful. And so will you. A nerve will be exposed. And that is by design. And the stakes are high. This is your life that God is asking you to adjust, right? So it's natural for us to have like a self-protective kind of reaction. And God knows this. And so God says, you need to be more receptive. You need to be more receptive to me. James chapter 1 says essentially the same thing. Uh, James 1.21 says, Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Keyword, humbly. That means when I approach the word of God, I have to do so with a teachable spirit, with a humble spirit, with a yielded spirit. Do you have that kind of attitude when it comes to the word of God? Are you willing to hear what the word of God has to say to you? What if it disagrees with you? I know this is not very popular in our day. 
Our, our culture does not value the Bible. Our culture thinks the Bible is culturally regressive. Uh, it thinks it's irrelevant. Why would you want to listen to a book written by goat herders from 3,000 years ago? That's where we are as a culture. They don't value this. But can I say if that's your attitude, that you're kind of deconstructing and uh, your authority of the Bible is in question, that, that this is not new, that the hard soil is like really an old problem, like Jesus talked about this 2,000 years ago? You didn't think of this. This is not a modern-day thing. Every culture bumps up against commands in the Bible, not just our culture. Do you realize there are things that your great-grandparents did in their culture that you're kind of embarrassed about? Are we so chronologically snobby and naive to think that there's not also things about our culture that our great-grandkids are going to be embarrassed about? If this is the Word of God, then we would expect it to bump up against every culture. See, in our culture, there are things in here like about marriage and sexuality that we find to be very countercultural. In other cultures, there are things in here that are countercultural in a different way. Other cultures might find the commands in here about forgiveness and grace to be very hard to understand. If they've ever been really wronged by someone, that feels like you're calling into question justice. Every culture is confronted by the Word of God in some way, shape, or form, including ours, including our own personal lives. Every person is confronted by the Word of God. And so we have to have a posture of submission. Notice in James 1 that word, accept. That's such a special word. It's a hospitality term. It means to accept somebody into your home. Like if somebody was coming over for, for uh, dinner or, you know, yesterday I went to a friend's house and they, they put on coffee for me. They put out hummus and celery and carrots. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. They're just like, hey, come on in. Let's talk. Let's visit. We accept you into our home. This is the way we're supposed to interact with the Word of God. We're supposed to accept it into our hearts as, as a welcome guest. Yes, come on in. Let me hear what you have to say, Lord. That's the posture. This is so very different from our world. See, the world says it this way. We, we take the Bible and we put it underneath of ourselves. We put it down here. We put us up here. The Bible's down here. Flip that around there. Sorry. The Bible's down here. And we, we look at it and we're like, I, I like this. I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. God says, no, you, you got you to, like, it's totally upside down. Put the Bible up here, okay, and let it look down at you. You go, I like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that. See, we're supposed to read the Bible, but we're also supposed to have the Bible read us. It judges even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so that's the posture here. This is wisdom. And the person who doesn't do that, there's another word in the Bible for them, I'll let the sage from Proverbs used that word. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10. A quiet rebuke to a person of good sense does more than a whack on the head of a fool. And so I read that and I go, okay, which person am I? Am I the one who receives the quiet rebuke? Or am I angry and defensive and unteachable? Do I humbly prepare to welcome what the word of God has to say to me? The choice is yours. Number two. The second soil is the shallow heart. These are the people who receive the word, and they're like really excited at first. Their response is emotional. But then when the emotions fade, as they always do, because emotions are fickle that way, their commitment fades as well. They have no roots, he says. They fall away because their roots are too shallow. In other words, as soon as the difficulties come, they can't take the heat. They think if Jesus can't take away these troubles, then what good is he? What use is this? And their commitment to him does not last. They like the benefits that Jesus brings, but they don't like the difficulties, so they leave. Just like the Dallas Cowboys, Jesus has fair-weather fans. Some of you just became fans today. Welcome to the club. This is why sometimes people who've prayed a prayer or walked down an aisle or come forward at a crusade or made a decision for Jesus don't necessarily stick with it over time. Probably the most famous evangelist ever is George Whitfield. He preached right under that tree in Basking Ridge, uh, and he had a very fruitful life in ministry, but oftentimes they would ask him, hey, uh, you know, 
Pastor Whitfield, how many people accepted Christ today? How many converts did you have at today's crusade? And he would always say this. He would say, we'll see in a few years. And don't get me wrong, it's not because he was saying they need to earn their salvation. What he was saying is that it's going to take some time to show the true nature of their commitment here. And if they persevere, then it was, then it was genuine. Jesus didn't say, I'm calling you to go make decisions. He said, I'm calling you to make disciples. That's what spiritual formation is. But the problem with the shallow soil here is they want the blessings, not the blesser. They want a sugar daddy. They don't want a king. They didn't want God to be God in their lives. One of the leading authors of spiritual formation is the late Dallas Willard. In his book, The Renovation of the Heart, he says it really well. He says, wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. Wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. And some people only see Jesus as somebody to help meet their goals, but they've never thought about rearranging their lives in such a way that they might help him meet his goals. So this is the shallow soil. And we can all be like this at times. Difficulties come and we get tossed around. I get upset. Like, why is this happening, Lord? And, but maybe instead of that, I could let my roots go a little deeper and say, Lord, what are you trying to show me here? How can I go deeper with you? I see the trial ringing my phone and I'm going to pick it up and say, Lord, what do you want to teach me? In your workbook, every week, there's spiritual formation exercises. This week, you'll notice on page 34 that there's an exercise for you to go a little deeper in God's Word, to spend 15 minutes with a passage there, and it asks you some questions that will help you in your own devotional life. Please take advantage of the exercises during the week. They will aid in your own process of spiritual formation. Roots got to go deeper. Soil number three is a really complicated one. And soil number three is the divided heart. Jesus says this soil has like weeds and thorns and it chokes the seed gradually over time. It's too crowded, so it's divided. These are people whose their priorities are just slightly out of whack. There are things in their lives that have become too important to them. And as a result, these folks are double-minded, both trying to be a Christian, but then equally occupied with some of the cares of this world. Other goals, other material things have come to replace the lordship of Christ. This is exactly how the cares of the world work and the deceitfulness of riches work. It works gradually. We slowly begin to give in to these desires, and then we want them more and more and more in our lives. And soon, I want, I want, I want becomes I can't stop, I can't stop. And we're suddenly making an idol out of this thing, and it's a, it's a weed that's choking out the good seed. I think we especially have to be careful about this living in our country. It's, it's a place of great prosperity, and so we have to watch out for our own hearts. We need to pray with the psalmist in Psalm chapter 86, verse 11, who said, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So take a look again at that heart that we handed out to you on your way in today, and just ask yourself, personally, what is that thing for you that, va- that vies for priority and sometimes replaces the Lord Jesus in your heart? What is that for you? Maybe there's too much competition in some area. Maybe you got work goals or financial goals or hobbies or, or family or other interests, strategic planning. All those things can be good unless you don't put God first. Ultimately, if God's not first, none of that other stuff is going to matter. That's why he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's why he says in Revelation chapter 3, you left your first love. That's why Genesis 1 begins with in the beginning God. In the beginning God is not just the recipe for the creation story. It's the recipe for you following Christ in your life. In the beginning God, God first, God first, God first, God first. There's actually some debate among scholars about this third soil, and they um, wonder whether or not they're actually Christians. Some say definitely no. Others say maybe Jesus left this one a little ambiguous on purpose. I don't know what you think about that, but here's what I do know. I want to be the good soil. Don't you? 
for the sake of my family, for the sake of my church, for the sake of my own reward when I stand before the Lord, I want to be that soil that produces fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. That's not going to happen by accident. That's going to be intentional on your part. Remember, the mark of the God-changed heart is, is you love to have God tell you what to do. New Testament scholar Robert Gundry summarizes the good soil so well. He says, the good hearer welcomes the word immediately so that it can't be snatched away by Satan. The good hearer welcomes it deeply so that it's not withered by persecution. And third, the good hearer welcomes it exclusively so that other concerns do not strangle it immediately, deeply, exclusively. That's the good soil. So as we look at the soil and you think about your own heart and your own life, just ask yourself, which soil am I? Which soil represents me? There's a bit of a warning here in this passage if you caught it. Commentator Cole sees here the law of what he calls progressive spiritual apathy, which is a mouthful. But what he means by that is when you hear the Bible taught without appropriating it, without doing and obeying what it says... It means that you will find your capacity for apprehension and for understanding actually dwindle and disappear over time. If instead I pay attention and accept God's word, then my capacity for receiving and understanding the Bible will grow over time. But if I do not humbly accept the word of God, and instead of being helped by it, I will be hardened by it. That's the warning. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Plant your feet on solid ground or you'll be tossed around your whole life. You see, someday we're going to pass on from this life and maybe on that day you'll be surrounded by those that you, you know best and know you best and those that love you most. And they'll gather around your bedside and they'll pray for you and they'll sing songs with you and they'll probably say to you some of the kindest words that you've ever heard about yourself in your entire life. And then you'll be gone, leaving all the evidence behind. Evidence on your computer, your devices, evidence on your record, all the private mail, notes, pictures. And they'll know what kind of soil you really had. A friend of mine from NBC shared with me a story that I want to relate to you now. It's about a guy named Bob Garippa. He was the dean of students at Dallas Seminary when I was there. Bob was a wonderful guy. He was from this large Italian family, and he was chosen as his dad died of a sudden heart attack to be the one to go through all of his dad's personal affairs. Bob really didn't want to do that. See, to understand Bob's dad, you have to understand he was a remarkable man. To hear Bob talk about him, he loved Bob's mother. He was loyal and faithful. He was the kind of man that you could rely on. He kept his word. He played no favorites. He carried himself with honesty and dignity throughout his entire life. And so Bob had a fear. He had a fear at the end that as he went through his dad's things, he might find something that nobody else knew about. Some secret that nobody knew. Something with a relationship or something with finances or something else. And so Bob was nervous. And then he decided, okay, it's time, it's time to do this. He decided he needed to do this. And he sat down at his dad's desk. And he opened drawers that nobody else had opened. And he looked inside files that nobody else looked in. And he read letters that nobody else had ever read. And he spent some time literally searching, reading, sometimes smiling at the mem memories, sometimes just laughing at things that had gone by, remembering these things. But to his great delight, when the search was all over, he found nothing. Not even anything remotely suspicious or questionable. His dad was as clean and clear 
as Bob and all of his siblings thought he was and, and hoped he was, but now he knew he was. His dad was not perfect, but he was a good man with good soil, a man of integrity. And Bob said, in that moment, when I realized there's nothing here, he began to weep audibly at his dad's desk with thanksgiving. Because the man that he admired and respected his entire life was everything that he believed him to be. There were no skeletons. There was, there was no potential scandal, no ugly piece of information to share with a family member that would break their heart. He had been a man who was genuine to the core, good soil. I pray that that will be true of me when I pass one day. And I pray that that will be true of you when you pass one day. But today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. If you find yourself deeply convicted about that, can I just encourage you that you need to make a decision today that you're going to make some changes, you're going to turn the corner, you're going to lay your life before God and confess those things that maybe have been shameful in your life. And you're going to commit to make it right. And if you do that, if you turn to the Lord, what you're going to find here is the most gracious, loving, merciful Savior you could ever imagine who wants to run down the road and meet you on your way. This book is about many things, but the primary subject of this book is about your Savior who came to forgive you and be merciful towards you in your sins, and he wants you to give your heart to him. Plant your feet on solid ground, or you'll be tossed around your whole life. Can we pray? Worship team, would you come? Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads and we close our eyes for just a moment, we thank you for preserving this story we thank you for your word. And now we want to be a people who would put your word in its proper place, who would place your word over us as our authority. We so long to be the good soil, but there are areas where we feel like the hard soil or, or even the divided soil or, or the shallow soil. So would you reign over us as king and speak your word over us and may we embrace and welcome your word into our hearts and into our lives for you are our God you are our king and you are holy and as we stand before you today we want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ you are worthy of our every devotion we stand in awe of you and we worship you now and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.